Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today is part three with Drew Kramer, our final episode together. In this episode, we talk more about Drew's journey through the leather title system, as well as his experiences through some of his kinks. Drew will also be joining me for a segment in my upcoming event called Leather Together, coming up May 30th, where we will discuss more about leather history. Stay tuned to the end to hear more about that event coming up soon. Just a friendly reminder for those just tuning in, this podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more Leather Talk. you want about gay men who are consumerist and can be so cruel to other gay men and make people with different bodies and different backgrounds, races and ethnicities feel bad about being who they are. Everybody who left before I left stopped and gave that man a hug, Yeah, you know, without exception. Um, wow. and you know, when horrible things happen to not just one people, but happen to a community of people, that community really discovers who they are, mm-hmm. you know, and whenever, especially in leather title holder circles or whatever, like whenever the word brotherhood Mm-hmm. you know, is tossed around. Oh my God, you kids today, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you do know after, you know, going through COVID, but. <sighs> no, I, I know. I mean, it's just, it, you, we can say it, but what does it look like? And that's kind of where you're getting at, right? Is what yeah, does brotherhood I mean, look like? Imagine somebody, you know, slightly, and you may not even like them very much. They might be kind of an asshole, but you find out that, oh, they're dying now. And so you join a list of people, their friends, who, you know, because they live alone in this, you know, fourth floor walk-up apartment, are basically taking shifts mm-hmm. to be there and sit with the person. Um, and that's what thousands and thousands of gay men did for each other. Wow. You know, and that's like, oh, that's a thing that I witnessed and I did myself, you know? That's very powerful. And I mean, you came out and came into leather in the thick of it, I think. And because of that, you've had many profound experiences I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, you're right. When when we're faced with a time of crisis, we really see what we're made of as a community. And I think that was definitely reflected, you know, in this last year as well. I mean, how many thousands of dollars have been raised for charity and, you know, how many people 
lent out a helping hand in this community. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, you know, brotherhood and, and what that means in, in application. I'm curious to know, because I know you do hold a leather title. Did your experiences through the AIDS epidemic, or um, I guess we can call it a pandemic because it really became global. Did your experiences influence your platform for your leather title or was that kind of a separate thing? Oh, my gosh. I uh, In New York City, where I lived before, mm -hmm. uh, Palm Springs, Leather titles were not a thing most of the years that I lived there. I, I don't remember all of New York City sending anyone to IML. And one year when we did, it was basically this guy who, like, you know, wanted to go to IML. And he was a great guy, and everybody loved him. Um, so he, like, you know, approached the lore, which was a great leather bar. Oh, my God, what a great leather bar. <laughs> anyway, he went to the Lord. He was like, uh, would you guys sponsor me to go to IML? And the Lord said, yeah, sure. So, you know, they made him a vest, and he went to IML, and he made the top 20, and he did pretty well. But it, like, wasn't really a thing. Mm -hmm. um, now it, it's it's definitely more of a thing. But anyway, so I I had no idea what this whole leather contest thing was about. But I moved to Palm Springs, and my first apartment here was literally like a three minutes walk from the tool shed. Okay. You know, and that's like one of the reasons why I said, ooh, yeah, this is a great apartment. Is because <laughs> it's walk walking distance. Shed. Yeah. Yeah. And I could like get, you know, shit faced and walk home and not have to worry about that. Right. Awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> and also the first two years I lived here in Palm Springs, uh, when I moved here, I went back to college, right? I, I went and I got a degree in construction management at College of the Desert. Okay. And my first go-round with going to college, I was uh, not a great student. And, you know, I graduated, but it was kind of a missed opportunity, academics-wise, even though I, I loved being in college and loved being an English major. But anyway, this time it's going to be different, and this is going to be my priority. So basically, you know, I had a 3.97 grade point average when all was said and done at College of the Desert, and that was a lot of hard work on my part. That was my priority, and I would, like, go to the tool shed, like, at 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night because I had finished up my schoolwork, mm -hmm. and that was where I met people and where I met the man who is now my partner. And, you know, I, I kind of would, like, use the bar as my living room, right? right? That's where I would go and hang out. And I was in there once, and the bartender, Charlie, basically, like, said, Hey, Drew, you're always wearing leather in here, right? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. I am a leather man. <laughs> like, great, we're going to have the Mr. Toolshed contest. Would you be a contestant? And I was like, that's really not my brand, you know? Right. I, I don't know that I will. Was, oh, come on. We're having a really hard time getting contestants. You know, it would, it would, it's, it's to help out the bar. Uh -huh. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> he twisted your arm. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, if I I felt I owed the tool shed. You know, they had you know welcomed me in, welcome stranger. So yes, I'll I'll like do that. Now, what year them. is this? 
Uh, this would be October of 2010. Okay. And so... Did you win? Before I was in a leather contest, I had never seen a leather contest, right? And okay. I was like, okay, you know, this is when I have to show up. And, um, you know, this is when they told me to show up and I'll, I'll wear leather and, you know, I'll bring some leather because they were like, oh, you know, there's different things you have to wear on stage. Like, okay, okay, got that, right? I found out that I was interviewing with the judges when they were walking me down the street to interview with the judges. <laughs> <laughs> okay. After we were coming off stage from the jockstrap portion of the contest, uh-huh. I was like, well, that went pretty well. What's next? And, you know, uh, Chris, the other contestant, was like, oh, now we give our speeches. And I was like, speeches oh wow well so you were just you you had no preparation you were just like okay i'll I'll do the next thing i guess (laughs) including chris failed to mention that the speech was 90 seconds which you know getting you to speak for 90 seconds is would be a challenge (laughs) we've been talking for some time now brandon it takes me 90 seconds to like clear my throat right (laughs) so what did you do um I won. And also, <laughs> also wow. Chris, the other contestant, is a trainer here in town. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Oh, my God. So fucking good looking, right? And he has an incredible body. And like standing on stage with him, I felt like the kid from the AV club who's setting up the slide projector for the wrestling team. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. like the water the water boy or something. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like took a look at Chris and I was like, Well, this is a fun this was a fun experience, which I guess I'll be leaving here, right? <laughs> but no idea why. Although my my judges interview uh did go pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh I really, really enjoyed it. But then next comes, you know, and just like a couple of weeks later comes the uh, Mr. Palm Springs leather contest. And there were three of us that year. Uh, another Chris, who was Mrs. Mr. Twisted Sister, and Henry, who was Mr. Barracks. And now that I know what the drill was, I was like, okay, I know how to put my best foot forward, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, and also, I had this really weird experience where. The next thing that happened was uh, the jockstrap portion, where you get the funny question. And I'm standing there getting ready to go out on stage, and I was like, okay, okay, funny question. Oh, my God, this is tough. What are they going to answer? I'm really not good at thinking on my feet. What am I going to say? Blah, blah, blah. So what might they ask? Uh, If you could be any sex toy, what sex toy are you going to be? oh, okay, you know, and I thought I had an answer for myself. And I get up on stage, and Lenny Broberg says to me, so, Drew, Mr. P- Mr. Toolshed, if you could be any sex toy, what sex toy would you be, and why? <laughs> uh-huh. I swear, that's actually what happened. And I blew the audience away with my answer. Which was? I would be a cock ring, often overlooked, We don't think too much about cock rings, but cock rings, they make good things better. They make (laughs) big things bigger. Okay. When, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) 
Okay, a little commercial for a cock ring. I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they ate it up, and so did the judges. But then, when I went on to IML... Well, hold on. So you won. Mr. Palm I won. Springs Leather I, I was Mr. 2011. Mr. Palm Springs Leather 2011. And I went on to IML. And again, no idea what I was in for. Mm-hmm. And uh, on my weblog... I, I think like the last thing in my weblog, which I kind of abandoned when I discovered Facebook, you know, and I didn't have, you know, how you have somebody go with you to, you know, stay in the room with you and sort of like help you, you know, okay, now right. this event. So I didn't have that person. Right? I was there alone. Okay. So no handler, nothing. Correct. No handler. Palm Springs Leather Order of the Desert, my sponsor. You know, they did an attempt at doing like the mock interview or whatever mm-hmm. and giving me some critique. But basically like it was just be yourself. That's what the judges really want you to know, see. I feel like the mock interviews don't help, at least not for me, because I need to be in the moment on the stage. Like I need to be there for me to really, for it to come out. I- I'm a performer when I when I'm a violinist and I get up on stage that's when it happens for me all the practice in the practice room is so trivial you know what I mean I don't and it's, know. It's, it's also because I went on uh, to have a second IML experience a uh, couple of years ago namely uh-huh. I was a judge oh <laughs> okay and let me tell you when somebody who has been mock interviewed up to their ass comes into the interview room and you barely get your question out and there they are with like the perfect answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. You've really, you know, prepared for that. But the person who just like, oh my God, did not see that question coming. What the fucking hell? And out comes something that just sort of like, oh my God, what an amazing person this guy is. There's a certain authenticity to answering a question that's without a prepared answer, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I think that's why I did well in my in my interview, because I didn't really know what to expect. And I think that's probably why, maybe one of the reasons why you did so well in your interview for Palm Springs or, or Toolshed, because you didn't know what to expect. All you had to pull from was yourself. Yeah. Although, although at IML... The thing that I did not know, because I was like, interview, I do great at interviews. Uh Nobody told me uh, that the interview is eight minutes long. (laughs) There are nine judges. It's eight minutes long. You have about 20 seconds to answer each question. You have about 20 seconds to answer each question. And I did not know that. And so I think I got through questions from four judges. And then I was like, so anyone else have a question? And five (laughs) judges were like, nope. And I thought that was because. Well, we got six questions, I think, now, Drew. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, I I was in the top 70% of my class at IML. Wow. No, do that math. Oh, wait. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> oh uh, yeah still wow <laughs> yeah i was i was 10 away from the top 20 okay. of a class of 50 not bad not yeah. bad 
there's some, there's uh, something that I, I jotted down a few uh, things that kind of stuck out to me about your experience at IML from your blog. And there's a couple of things that you said here I want to bring up and maybe get your thoughts on. One thing you said about the, the judging room was that everyone in the room is on your side. You're going to be judged. <laughs> now would be a good time to start liking yourself. <laughs> what did you mean by that? It, 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 what, what, what you said about authenticity, uh-huh. right? I mean, if you, the advice, having been, having been a judge at IML, <laughs> uh, when people going to IML or, or, you know, preparing for whatever leather contest approach me for words of wisdom, mm-hmm. one of the things I tell them is that thing about you, which is the reason that you are absolutely not going to win IML, that is your brand. That is what you want to put on a flag and go into every room waving in front of you. That is your strength. That is what you have going for you. That is the thing that none of the other contestants have. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I mean, whether or not you win, I, I mean... It shouldn't say anything about who you are personally because it's all subjective. They're not like, it's not like the judges, right, are sitting there. They can't take points on how, like, if everyone's being truly authentic and being themselves, how do you judge that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it, exactly. There, there is no talent portion of the competition. Mm-hmm. And I, I was probably a crappy judge at IML because I, with everybody... With all of the contestants during the interviews and at every event, really, I did my best to give them an opportunity to light up the room. Uh huh. I really, that's what I wanted to do, to give them an opportunity to shine. And I judged some people really, really, really well, mm-hmm. which because like the lowest score and the top score are thrown out before results are tabulated. Probably like, you know, I did those people no favors. <laughs> 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 yeah. Off, off, off the table goes my score. But, you know, I really like, I wanted to find a way to embrace everybody. Mm-hmm. I can see that being difficult because everyone is unique and there's something to appreciate, I'm sure, in every single contestant. And like... IML, as uh, I'm pretty sure I talked about this in my weblog way back when, as Drew the contestant, but one of the things that happens that you aren't expecting to happen is it is an intense experience. It is a crucible. It is like nothing. There is no way that you can prepare for this because like throughout a really, really busy and taxing weekend, you are being looked at and judged all the time, mm-hmm. which come throws you completely. And it's like no experience you ever had. But guess what? There's a few dozen other men who are going through that exact same experience you are. And even though like at the outset everybody's like facing and like, hello, I'm Mr. So and so leather. It's very good to meet you. Yeah. My platform includes blah blah blah. Right. That goes away really quick as, you know, there you are together in the foxhole under fire. Right. Um it's a really, really 
close relationships form of having gone through this experience together. The relationships that I have and the warmth that I feel for the men who were contestants when I judge, mm -hmm. that goes a lot deeper than that I have for my class brothers. Uh, class brothers, any class brothers who are listening, I don't mean you. You I love very much. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's some of the other ones. But collectively, there are a lot more men who were contestants at IML who just like, you know, and part of that is I, I just feel so honored to, you know, they stood before me. I could ask whatever fucking question I wanted. Mm -hmm. And they were raw and beautiful and vulnerable. And, oh, my God, thank you for that. You know, I want to read uh, a little bit of what you were saying in your blog about this kind of experience. You say you have entered a select fraternity. There are barely more than a thousand men in the world who have experienced what you will have experienced. Among them alone will you truly be able to talk to someone who understands what you have been through. And you end that blog by saying, welcome, brother. You are setting off on a journey. I am behind you all the way. But like in all important things in life, you're going to step through the doorway alone. And it's really intriguing to see that perspective of you don't necessarily have to go to IML to win because that journey and that brotherhood and the, the experience itself is life changing enough. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's really like, oh, some people can handicap the winner my year when James Lee was announced and your next IML is James Lee. Like some of the judges were like, Oh, I knew it was going to be him. I did not know it was going to be him, but I didn't know who it was going to be. You know, I really, really, and you know, who makes the top 20 and who doesn't make the top 20. I just find it completely impossible to predict. So if you set your sights not set your sights, but if you think I should win International Mr. Leather or I should win Mr. Bullet or whatever, oh my God, are you doing yourself a disservice, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a very good chance that even though you should win, you're not going to win. Well, right? you're setting yourself up for disappointment because only one person can win. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, you know, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and also grievance, mm -hmm. right? And I think we've all maybe seen contestant, not winner, grievance, right? Yeah. Raise its ugly head. And, you know, you've just let this potentially really beautiful experience go right by you. You know, you missed it. Yeah. You went to Disneyland and just stayed in the souvenir store yeah. and didn't go on any of the rides. Well, speaking of going on the rides, um, let's get kinky. What do you think, Drew? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, one of the highlights of being a leather man and a title holder, right, is is uh, also being kinky. I'm curious to know uh, what some of your kinks are. Well, actually, probably when we took a break, right, uh -huh. and you'll see... And I was like, I've got to step out for a smoke. You know, we don't get to choose our fetishes. They come upon us. I have this deep-seated, deep-down smoking fetish. Really? 
Oh my God. <laughs> what is it about the smoking that is uh, sexual for you? Everything, everything, everything. It's, it's, I guess it was, you know, when I was teenage gay boy or whatever, older kids smoked and they were like, the bad kids. They were the rule breakers. They were the kids who got in trouble. They were the kids who smoked in the bathroom, you know, mm-hmm. in the boys' room. In the school, rebels. Right? Yeah. And were hauled off to see the assistant principal. And in my high school experience, they wore engineer boots and flannel shirts. Mm-hmm. And that like drew me to them. And the fact that, you know, it, it's also like, Smoking is bad for you. Smoking is very bad for you. Smoking gives you cancer, heart disease, emphysema, lung cancer. But there's something about valuing pleasure over danger and bad for you. I see. There's a taboo-ness to it. I mean, it's the same reason why people are into all kinds of things that could hurt them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk about whipping. You shared with me earlier a a scene described in your book, the Inferno scene. Is whipping one of your your fetishes? Yeah, it, it, I don't, man, I don't know if fetish is the right word, but it's when I was, I mean, I knew I was kinky or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? I wanted bondage and domination. I, I, I mean, you wanted to tie up and whip your scout leader. (laughs) Exactly. For example, um, <laughs> but like even sex only really makes sense to me mm-hmm. unless there's an incredible amount of love that I have for my partner and my partner has for me. Just sort of like, let's be in our lives together forever kind of love. If there's not a component in sex or anything erotic where one person is in charge and the other person is very much not in charge it's like doing the dishes it's sawing the board it's you know monotonous for you so you like the power exchange element too absolutely there's got to be that and you know so in my early years in my early years in leather that sort of was erotic charge was kind of like free floating Mm -hmm. you know i'd find it where i can get it but I became a member of uh, GMSMA after I got myself out of a really unpleasant non-leather relationship. And GMSMA was an amazing organization because like every blessed Wednesday night at uh, the LGBTQ Community Center in New York City, they had a program. You know, a really interesting program. And then they had this curriculum of like workshops and special interest groups on bondage, on flogging, on piss, on fisting, on whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was just an amazing range. And I learned so much, so much through GMSMA. But anyway, it was like this rainy, dreary, cold, awful weekend in March. And I had nothing doing. And I was like, oh, well, maybe something interesting is happening with GMSMA. So I like looked at the newsletter and sure enough, they were having like a weekend long workshop Saturday and Sunday, like all day Saturday, all day Sunday on single tail whips. 
And I had like zero interest in single tail whips. I think, you know, somebody had once taken a couple of cracks at me and I was like, wow, fuck, that hurts. No, thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I like, didn't get why, you know, how could that be a thing? Mm-hmm. You know, but I thought, oh, well, you know, I have nothing to do. I don't want to sit home. Maybe there'll be some hot guys there. Right. So I, I went and first thing that happened was Andrew and Michael, who ran the workshop, right? They explained the history of whips and different types of whips. And, you know, there was sort of like the informational download. And then they were like, okay, this is going to be hands-on. So they passed out whips from their collection. And they basically said, this is how you throw it. You know, you want, you can't look at it, but you have to get a sense of when the whip is out behind you parallel to the floor. And then you just flick your wrist, wrist to bring it forward. And it results in a crack of the whip as the kinetic energy like moves down the body of the whip. And finally the cracker mm-hmm. moves over and breaks the sound barrier. And it's actually a little sonic boom that causes that crack. Okay. They pass out whips. I take a whip in my hand for the very first time and thinking through what happened. And I am a very physically awkward person. I was like the last among my friends to learn how to ride a bike. I was the last to learn how to swim. I was, gym class was a horrible experience because I could not fucking do any of that. First time I had a whip in my hand, I like drew it back and I brought it forward. And I was the only one in a class of like 20 guys whose whip, big lab Gosh. I was like, oh my God, what the fuck was that? And Andrew looked at me and he said, you're a natural. And he sort of like went on to become my mentor into the world of single tail whips, to which I am eternally grateful. Wonderful, great man that he is. But the clincher was when they talked about sort of like the psychodynamics of a whipping scene. And... What they explained was it's an incredible degree of trust. When a man consents to allow you to whip him, he doesn't know really what he's in for, right? You know, even if he's been whipped a hundred times before, every time is really different because you're in a different place in your life. And what whipping does is it just strips away all of those ego defenses, you know, until you're just shattered and naked and raw. And there's no way you can prepare yourself for that. And for the man who's doing the whipping, you are taking on a huge responsibility because after this experience, you have to hold this man as he puts himself, you know, as he like puts his ego back together and tries to make sense of it all. And Andrew said, no matter how long this man wants to, wants you to hold him in your arms while he cries, that's how long you hold him in your arms while he cries. Wow. And I had never in my life, held a man in my arms 
while he cries, and not just cries like, oh, I didn't get picked for the top 20, but just cries his heart out. Yeah. Right? And I had never cried my heart out while another man held me in his arms for as long as it took for me to put myself back together. And I thought, I want to go to there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want that experience in my life. You know, because so much of living as we do in the 21st century, so many really formative life experiences that happened to our great grandparents, mm-hmm. we're totally removed from that, you know? And, you know, my grandparents, one winter during the Depression, they ran out of food. And they almost starved to death, mm-hmm. like the whole fucking family, right? And our experiences that we have now, they're not really experiences, they're mediated, right? Mm-hmm. It's things happening to people on television or in movies that have replaced that. And one of the things about leather and about BDSM is it provides us with an opportunity, right? I mean, like, if... We meet in a bar and we hit it off and go home together. And I'd say, I think you would really look great all tied up. And you're like, oh my God, I'd love that. And so I get out my ropes and I start putting my ropes on you. And then there you are all tied up, right? You have just put your life in my hands, right? Right. I could put a plastic bag over your head, and that's the last that the world would have heard of Brandon, Mm -hmm. you know? And I come away from that with the experience of another man putting his life in my hands in the way that he's probably done to few other people in his entire life. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, and it's, it's, we have almost so much opportunity to do shit like that, that we don't realize how incredibly powerful it is, you know? Right. But the power is absolutely there. And after several hundreds, however many of those experiences, you're changed as a person, mm-hmm. you know, you are living a deeper life on a deeper level than the guy sitting next to you on the bus. Right. Now, I'm curious to know if you have, I mean, clearly you've you've been the man wielding the whip and having that experience, but I wonder, have you had that experience being the man that gets whipped and, and cries in another man's arms? Oh my God, have I ever? Yeah, yeah. Not a bunch of times, but a few times. And it's always the result of this sort of like feeling grows inside of me that, okay, it's time for you to go down, right? And I'll start sort of like get my antennas up for somebody to do the honors. And one of those experiences during the time that, I mean, I like left my adult life in New York City, moved into my childhood bedroom in rural Pennsylvania, and took care of my father for the last five years of his life. Mm -hmm. And being a parent to your parent and people at the end of their lives 
develop a certain selfishness and narcissism, which you're going to do it, I'm going to do it, you know, it's there waiting for us. It's a thing that happens at the end of your life if you, you know, are conscious of yourself like, oh, just a few years or months now. But anyway, very much so with my dad. And I just sort of felt like I kind of need to be whipped. And I didn't even really know what was going on with that, right? But I reached out to a friend of mine, and he was going to Inferno, which is this annual run done by the Chicago Hellfire Club. And I was going to Inferno, and so uh, we agreed that he would whip me at Inferno. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd been whipped a few times before, and it's, it's, I mean, on the first time I was whipped by Andrew, uh, the man who mentored me into single-tailed whips, Oh, my God, it was fucking joyous because, like, the endorphins are just pumping in a way that they never had with me before. And I was, like, screaming and laughing and crying and doing all of those things at the same time. I had a blast, absolutely a blast. But anyway, like, so on the appointed night, I met with... um Oh, my friend John, uh, John McConnell, who just died a few months ago. John McConnell, a great, wonderful leather man from San Diego. And he also, in real life or whatever, he is a uh, clinical psychologist uh, and a really fucking good one. And that turned out to be really lucky for me. Because anyway, I got up there on the cross and, okay, here we go, and... John started, and the very first time the cracker of the whip connected with my back, I just screamed. And then it happened again. I was screaming and I was crying. And he kept at it. And then finally he came and, you know, he sort of like held me and leaned in and he said, I'm going to take three more, and then we're done. You know, and I sort of said, like, yes, sir, and thank you, sir. And he gave me three more, and everyone, I was screaming and crying. And then uh, he came, and he put his arms around me, and he said, okay, it's done. You made it. Mm. And the earth disappeared under my feet. And I just fell out because the whipping had stopped, but there was so much pain that I was carrying that I didn't realize I was carrying Mm -hmm. until the whipping brought that out. I fell apart completely, and I was just howling with anguish to the point where to the extent that I was able to like form a thought, I thought, this is it. I'm never going to be able to come back from this. I'm going to, you know, be lost yeah, uh, and insane from now on. And it was because like, when you are a parent to your parent, it takes, you've got to fucking hold it together, right? Yeah. You've got to hold it together and thing questions like 
So my dad just turned 83 and there's nothing majorly wrong with him and I'm 45 and he could, you know, people live to be 100. Right. So I could be 65 years old and still here alone, isolated, taking care of my father, right? You don't ask yourself those questions if you want to get up out of bed in the morning and do what you have to do that day, right? And all of that stuff I had been packing inside of me, just stamping down, stamping down, stamping down until John McConnell whipped me and all of it came flooding out. And thank God he's a psychologist because he was there. He was there. For as long as it took, and it took a while. How um, how has that experience affected you as as a, a top now? I mean, how do you whip people after this experience? I I absolutely I have. You know, here's here's what I think it did to me. That's God. That's a great question. Um, because I mean, this is how I approach whipping now, mm-hmm. and it just is occurring to me right now that. This isn't always how I approach whipping, but I used to, before that, I would try to give the man I'm whipping a good ride. And there are all these sort of like tricks that I do where I slowly build to a crescendo and then I drop off. And, you know, I try to avoid having a pattern. So, you know, we keep him on his toes and let him get to a point where he's not anticipating, but is just sort of in this zen, let it flow through you kind of thing. So you're working the technical skill of the process, really. Right. And I also, a lot of men I whipped used to tell me, wow, that was so great, but, you know, I could have gone a lot farther, right? And I'd say, well, Mm -hmm. maybe next time. You know, I would would hold back a lot, right? Uh -uh. Uh-uh, (laughs) uh-uh, because... (laughs) Here's what I can guarantee. You're not going to die. I'm not going to whip you to death. And I'm going to do everything, 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 everything I can to make sure that we don't end up in urgent care because of what I do to you. I'm going to whip you. And out of respect for your strength and your courage that you might not know you have, I'm not going to hold back. It's going to hurt a whole hell of a lot. You have absolute liberty to do whatever to make it, you have to do to make it through this ordeal. If you want to scream, if you want to cry, if you want to call me names, whatever, whatever, you can do that. And what I basically... You need to go to a place, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what place that is. You may not know what place that is. The way that we get there is by me whipping you, right? Me like stripping away all those ego defenses. Mm -hmm. I'm not in control. You actually are the person in control. And I pledge to you... I'll give you whatever support you need that when we come out the other end together, I'm there for you forever. 
you know, whatever it takes, whatever you need to make this experience a part of you. So it sounds like your experience as a bottom really informed you on what is possible to achieve in this experience. And now this is something that you can offer because, you know, as a top to sort of be a guide to take us to a place that maybe you didn't even know you could go yourself before that point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like at one point I read a lot of books on shamanic practice and common conceptions about how that works are uh, wrong. Um, because like what generally happens, right, is you are feeling like nothing in your life is right. You know, you don't feel good. You don't like the people you're with. You don't like the work you're doing. It just seems so pointless, so meaningless. So, you know, you're, you're like sick at heart, right? You're, the life you're living is not your life. Yeah. And you go to a shaman and the shaman has access to some psychoactive substance, right? Mm -hmm. And what he tells you is, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to like give this to you and you're going to have a dream. And here's some advice, right? If, for example, and you know, it's more extensive than this, but one thing I remember is if in your dream you encounter something that terrifies you, move towards it because there's a lesson there that you have to learn. You drink down the potion, pass out on the bed and have this dream. What the shaman does is sits there next to you, you know, and maybe like strokes your forehead and makes sure you don't fall off the bed and protects you while you go on this journey that you need to go through. And afterwards, when you come out of it, there's the shaman who's going to tell me about that. Give me your wisdom that you have gained, you know? So in other words, this is a highly spiritual experience and that you're encountering. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, like, spirituality, spiritual aspects of BDSM have always been really important to me. And they've, I've also noticed that they've been important to a lot of gay men mm -hmm. who are about my age. And I think a lot of that has to be going through the AIDS crisis, where there we are face to face with mortality, you yeah. know, and anybody in those situations is like, what does it all mean? What is purpose? How can I find purpose? Who am I? What am I about? You know, and yeah, of course, leather is like the well that we'd go to, you know, for sustenance. Right. Well, Drew, I know, I feel like we could be here for five more hours and we might be in the future, but <laughs> before we go, um, I do want to ask you if you have any last statements or anything you'd like to share with our audience before we go. Oh my gosh. Um, find your people. Mm -hmm. And I hope that for you, as it absolutely was for me, leather can be a way for you to find your people. And even though there might be 
people you think are your people who turn out not to be your people. And even though there might be people who say, hey, we are your people and they're not your people either. Mm -hmm. Find your people. Thank you so much for those words of advice. How can we reach out to you? How can we stay connected? I am definitely on Facebook, uh, Drew D. Kramer of Palm Springs, California. And I am a, uh, oh, very busy user of Facebook. Uh, (laughs) I recently figured out the Twitter and I am now on the Twitter but mostly in Twitter space, what I'm doing is following people and a couple of times commenting and not posting so much. I'm on Recon. My handle, my screen name on Recon is Crush, K-R-R-R-U-S-H. And I think that's about it. And if we want to read more on your blog, how can we find that? Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, my my blog, which I haven't posted. In a few years. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but for a while, like back in the 90s, I think I started it back in the 90s when blogging was a thing and it was new. And I've always wanted to be, thought of myself, hoped I could be a writer, mm-hmm. right? And blogging was a way for me to write so that I was read. And as on Facebook, just no filter, very TMI. And I basically put out several years of my leather life, the Mm -hmm. good, the bad, the ugly, at singletails.blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T. Singletails is spelled S-I-N-G-L-E-T-A-I-L-S, singletails.blogspot.com. And I'll make sure to put a link to that in the description below. Yeah, it's really intriguing, uh, you guys, even if you only just read a few. It it really is just like your everyday journey through leather life and the ins and the outs. And I think it looks like the first post you have here is from 2002. And the last goes all the way up to uh, May of 2011. So it's, it's quite a journey. I wasn't able to read through all of it, obviously, but definitely worth the read. I want to thank you again, Drew, for coming on the show and just being so transparent. Before we go, I want to remind our audience about my upcoming event that I will be hosting alongside Queen Anna Algos, Miss Sanctuary Leather 2020. I will be broadcasting over Zoom from the Bullet Bar, and she will be doing the same from Sanctuary LEX Studios. Those who would like to join us at those prospective locations in person may do so on May 30th at 3 p.m. You can also log into the Zoom, which will be viewable on both of our social medias linked below. We are calling this event Leather Together, where we will host several panels covering the topics of leather history, BDSM, and personal stories from various leather title holders. We will also have performances and prizes, and all of the proceeds from the prize items and donations will go directly towards the LELC Cares, Boulevard Pantry, and Reach LA. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet, and Twitter as Branded Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay safe. Stay healthy and stay kinky.